our scripture reading, our, our, for our sermon, that is, this morning is from Colossians chapter 4. We've been working through the book of Colossians this spring, and we are rapidly reaching the end of this. Um, we are going to have a new series, two series actually, uh, interlocking during the summer, and uh, I'll be publishing that, Lord willing, this week, so look forward to that, certainly by next Sunday. And... Uh, but we are reaching the end of this Colossians series. We've got one more message in it, which is next week. And so let's, let's turn our attention now to uh, God's Word here. And although this will be on your screen, let me ask you just, if you've got a Bible, even if it's a digital Bible, you turn, click, swipe, tap, whatever you do. Get there and camp out there for a minute with me, because I want the Word of God to sing. And I want my words to be in line with God's Word. So you check me on that. Ultimately, our authority is God's word, not man. So, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Sometimes things are so simple and so easily understood that they get ignored or simply overlooked. It seems in our busy times, I often miss simple pleasures the falling of the rain on a summer day or a beautiful snowfall on a winter afternoon. I notice it, but I'm so busy, so many other activities that I don't just sit and take it in, enjoy it. When I was a kid, before I was surrounded by tech and I was bored, maybe I'd just sit there for a while. And sitting there for a while forces you to take things in, doesn't it? Slow down and see, learn, experience feel. There's value in slowing down sometimes, maybe a lot of times. I think that's one of the reasons why many of us are struggling in the current season. I think it messes with me. There's that feeling that you're not doing anything unless you're hurried or you're rushed. Checking in on this, checking out that. Most of us have a little bit extra time in our days. If for no other reason, then we don't have to commute to work. We don't have to be quite as concerned about whether that one hair is out of place. And no one notices if you forgot to put on deodorant for the Zoom meeting. But many of us don't feel less busy. More time often means more opportunity to fit in busyness. One of the reasons I typically translate a Bible passage from scratch when I'm preparing a sermon, especially if it's in the New Testament, because my Hebrew is a little rough, is it forces me to slow down. It forces me to think, to reflect on each word. Sometimes I'll, I'll diagram sentences or perform other sorts of structural analyses. Again, just to slow me down, make sure I understand. It's a corrective against my nature, which is just to plow through stuff. And I think the tendency to rush can generally be harsh on our Bible reading. And so we come to a passage like Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. It's really pretty simple. 
There are a few straightforward commands, none of which are particularly controversial, not a lot of big words, and we can fly through them and maybe never let them hit us, never let them move us, never let them change us. This passage is the third in a set of instructions that could be nested under the overarching command of chapter 3, verse 1. There Paul wrote, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The first set of admonitions about this heavenly calling, this upward calling, were centered on personal and community church holiness. The second set were centered on the Christian home. And this third set is primarily focused on Christians' relationships with what's outside the church, with what or whom is in the world, we might say. We might put it this way. Our heavenly calling demands an outward focus. Our heavenly calling demands an outward focus. And that outward focus relates both to our prayer lives and our daily lives. Prayer life and daily life. And we'll look at each in turn. The first section involves two instructions concerning prayer. The first, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Let's say something about prayer, just to make sure that we're on the same page. We got a short passage and we got two points, so I got a little time. Christian prayer is communication with the one true God, Yahweh, who is Father and Son and Spirit. Generally, but not always, generally Christian prayer is directed to the Father. The prayer is carried out in Jesus' name as it's the Son who has made a way for us to have access before God. And we hope to conform our requests to Jesus' heartbeat. But then prayer is done in the power of the Spirit. He's the one who moves it in us to desire to pray. He teaches us how to pray. He reveals sin to us so that we desire to confess it. And he even prays on our behalf. Christian prayer is not prayer to any other deity or any other angel or any other person, dead or alive. There, just, there are no examples of a person of faith doing this in the Bible, and it runs counter to the very idea that we have direct access to God through the blood of Jesus. As the author of Hebrews writes, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Confidently, we can draw near the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus. Now, prayer comes in several forms in Scripture. There are five categories we see in Scripture. First, we see adoration or praise. These are prayers that give God honor and speak boldly about his awesomeness. The second category is thanksgiving, and that's very closely related to adoration. And, and sometimes these two bleed together. Thanksgiving is what we offer to God when he has acted in a way that is to our advantage. Even when that advantage might seem surprising to an onlooker, because the Christian can even see times of pain and sorrow as events that are worthy of thankfulness because we know that God is working his goodness for us through them. Third, there's confession, which is acknowledging our sin and our guilt before God and trusting in his mercy. 
Fourth, there's lamentation or lament. Lament is when we cry out to God because of the painful realities that surround us. Christian lament, biblical lament, however, does not end like the fourth track of the 2005 release of your favorite emo band. Instead, it translates itself into a recommitment of trust in God despite the trials of life. The fifth category we see in scripture is supplication or making requests. And it's probably the type of prayer we engage in the most for better or worse. Let's put some skin on this with an example. I might adore God. I might praise God that he is a saving God, a redeeming God. It's his nature to restore what was lost and rescue the broken. I might confess that I am wicked and sinful and desperately in need of a savior. I might thank God that he has saved me or saved us from my own sin and filth. I might lament that so much of the world lives without God and without hope in this life and is so desperately in need of saving. And I might supplicate God to save the lost, to save specifically him or her or them, rescuing them and bringing them into his kingdom and family. So do you understand these distinctions? I bring these up because the command is broad. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul does mention thanksgiving here, and I'll speak about that in a second, but the basic frame here is prayer generally. But the command does not merely mean we ought to pray. It means we ought to continue steadfastly in prayer. This characteristic of steadfastness or perseverance is often used in Christian devotion of the New Testament in prayer, in following the apostles' teaching, in meeting together. There's probably at least an overtone of doing something that isn't obviously easy. A sense in which the task that one is continuing in steadfastly might require some persistence or endurance. I was, I was biking over the Veterans Memorial Bridge this week, and there's a point at which you realize this is just going on a little bit longer than I thought at first. And there's a temptation to let go, uh, to glide, to walk. But you know that if you push and pump left and right, left and right, you'll, you'll get there, you'll make it, you get to the other side. And, and that seems to be the idea of prayer for Paul. It's not always going to be natural or easy, but we must push through that anyway. This should be both an encouragement and an exhortation for us Christians. It's an encouragement because many of us know all too well that prayer does not come easily. You're not alone. Paul expected it to be something that we had to persevere in. It's an exhortation, though, because you can't just write it off as something I'm not good at that. That's something other people do. Something that's just, it's not my strength. Some people are prayer warriors. I wish I was, but I'm not, and I'm okay with who I am. You can't do that because that's sort of the point of it being something you have to endure. If people easily ran marathons, no one would run marathons. There's no Olympic event for running from our car to the bathroom after a long road trip. 
We're all pretty hardwired to be able to do that with a decent degree of effectiveness. No one is impressed by your 4.3 second C to B time. But if you run a marathon at all, people are mildly impressed, right? Why? Because it doesn't come naturally. You have to choose it and you have to work hard at it. So Christians, let's choose it and let's work in it. What will it take? Five minutes today or tomorrow? Six minutes the next day? Maybe it's taking five minutes to write out a list of things that need prayer. And then however, however long it takes to work through that list. Whatever tricks or helps makes sense for you, but this is something that probably isn't going to come easy, but it's still valuable and we need to work at it. But what do we pray about? Well, the list of things that are worth praying about is nearly endless. But this passage focuses our minds on a few things in particular. There are two phrases here that describe what our prayer life should look like. The first is being watchful in it. What does that mean? Well, the word typically is used to describe the work of a watchman. Perhaps we might think of a guard on a parapet or of a tower. But, but Jesus in particular uses the word in a little bit different way. And Paul is almost certainly borrowing from Jesus' teaching here. Most famously, Jesus uses it when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, before his trial and crucifixion. There he charges his disciples, stay awake or stay alert or stay watchful and pray with him. The goal of this prayer was so that they would not fall into temptation. Of course, if you know the story, the disciples, excuse me, the disciples fail and fall into temptation, scattering to protect their own lives. And in Peter's case, going so far as to deny Jesus. The disciples failed to pray, and so they failed to stay faithful. It seems likely that the Colossian Christians would be familiar with this teaching of our Lord and understand that they need to stay alert in prayer so that they might see the danger of the approaching enemy, which is sin. Jesus also speaks of being alert or watchful as the posture of his followers in the midst of a fallen and dying world. It was tied to his eventual return as judge of the living and dead. He could come at any time, and the timing of his coming is and was unknown. But his followers would not be caught off guard. They wouldn't be unprepared if they stay alert. Why not? Because they would not squander the time they have here. They would not waste it. The world is full of pleasures and good things that might ultimately distract us from following Jesus. And perhaps we think, one day I'll get right with God. One day I'll put this sin to bed. Eventually I'll settle down. But see, Jesus says you don't know the day of your death or the day of his return. And your lack of watchfulness will be your destruction. And so we could say that watchfulness is our protection against two opposite external threats. The threat of being tempted by sin to deny Jesus and commit apostasy, and the threat of meeting Jesus without a love and commitment to him. I assure you that it's a dangerous place to be. 
But though we endure a faithless and sometimes hostile world, a world that wants to take our eyes off Jesus, we persevere with thankfulness. I think Paul emphasizes thankfulness here because it can be so easy to lose sight of the good things that God has done for us in the darker hours, maybe hours like now. Imagine the soldier on guard duty. He's on shift overnight and he grows weary. He's tired. He's been deployed for too long and he's seen too much. It might be easy to forget all the mercies of God under such circumstances, but recognizing the mercies of God and thanking him for them is one of the ways we endure such hardships. But the external focus of our prayer lives in this passage do not end with the threats against us. So we read in verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us, or excuse me, may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Here, Paul was asking, even commanding, that the Christians in Colossae would pray for the gospel mission of Paul and his co-workers. Paul was hard at work. Heck, he was in prison for his work. But Paul understood that the success of his work was ultimately dependent on God and knew that the way to bring God's power to bear on this gospel enterprise was prayer. What door would God open for the gospel while Paul was in prison? Perhaps that Paul would be freed. But I don't think Paul was being that specific. If you know the letter to the Philippians, in that letter, Paul tells the Philippian Christians that he rejoiced in his imprisonment because the entire Roman imperial guard had heard the message of Jesus while and because he was in jail. I don't think Paul was so focused on his own freedom. He was focused on the opportunity for God's word to be proclaimed. And so that's why he says a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ is this idea that is permeated throughout this book, the the idea that God's final plan to save sinners and fix everything that was wrong in the universe culminated in a single person, Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he bore the penalty for my sins and the sins of all who trust in him and turn from their old lives. And he rose from the dead, and and so he promises to raise us who believe to new life eternally with him when he recreates the universe. Further, Paul asks that they pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Notice he doesn't pray for the word to be effective or for him to be an effective speaker per se. That's in God's hand. He doesn't pray that he is persuasive. He doesn't pray that he's creative. He doesn't ask that they pray for him to be seen as cool. He prays that he's clear, that he lays out the truth of Christ plainly and understandably. If he does that, then God's spirit will work through the word to accomplish his ends. So Paul could write in Romans 10, how then will they call on him, Jesus, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
So he's praying or he's asking for prayer that he would have the opportunity to preach. But of course, if his message is nonsense, if it's unclear, if it's unintelligible, it's no different than, there had, if, than it, if there had been no preacher there at all. So like he says in 1 Corinthians 14, so with yourselves, if, your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So let me suggest that Paul's request is written here, not just as a historical note that once upon a time Paul requested prayer for his ability to preach the gospel, but as a reminder that our prayer lives ought to be focused on the missionary work of the gospel. We are watchful to ensure that we are responsive to the gospel in our own hearts, but we are also deeply concerned to see the gospel go out to the billions of hearts in this world who mostly have never even heard anything of meaning about Jesus, who are dying at a rate of 150 to 200,000 per day, over 100 per minute, lives that will mostly be lost to an eternity of suffering apart from Christ because they rejected the author of life. A couple practical ways you can do this. First, as you think about people in your life, we can pray one of two things for them. One, that they would hear and respond to the gospel if they aren't Christians. Or two, that they would have an opportunity to preach the gospel and to do so clearly if they are Christians. Pray this especially about the members of your church, which for most of you is Gateway Downtown. Second, you can find an app or a website that helps connect you with missionary work that needs to be done. One great one is Operation World, which rotates through the nations and continents of the world day by day and explains some of the significant gospel needs there. Another is the International Mission Board's prayer page and app, IMB Pray, IMB Pray. There you'll find almost daily requests from actual missionaries across the world with specific prayer requests for the gospel in their communities. Let me encourage you to use these tools to give your prayer life a distinctly missionary focus. But you know, this sort of prayer, this sort of prayer focus, this, this missionary focus leads us directly into the second avenue of this passage about how our heavenly calling ought to impact our daily lives. And we see this in verses five through six. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This word walk, it could be translated something like go about or wander from place to place. I wouldn't translate it that way because that would be over-translating, but, but that was the original sense. The word is peripateo, and, and it's where we get the word peripatetic. We might say that someone like Jesus had a peripatetic ministry. He journeyed from place to place, preaching his message. And so the word gradually came to be used, especially in the Jewish community, more figuratively to describe a person's course of life. Our lives are sort of like a journey from place to place, moving from activity to activity. It's sort of a poetic way of looking at it. But the point is that the command isn't so much about walking, as if this were 
not something an infirmed or disabled person might be able to do. The command is to live or to conduct one's life with wisdom toward outsiders. Outsiders here are those who are not part of the Christian community, not part of Christ's church. At first, we might think that Paul means use wisdom because they, those outsiders, could be a threat or a danger to you. But that's not what Paul says. That's not where he goes. I know that there are some more fundamentalist churches and fundamentalist Christians who, who preach a, an almost an entire separation from the world that is so strong that there is almost no functional contact between the Christians and the world. It's almost like a fear, like, get that away from me, or I, I can't be near that. I might get contaminated by that. But that's not what Paul sees here. Paul envisions the Colossian Christians living their lives in the very presence of the outsiders. Their conduct is on display for these outsiders to see. And this is in a time before social media or the Internet. So, in fact, Paul immediately then pivots to speech. So the implication is clearly that these Christians are conducting their lives in such a way that ordinary, everyday conversation with unbelievers is a regular part of their experience. And that's a far cry from any sort of separation mentality. So what does it mean to walk in wisdom or, or, or to conduct our lives with wisdom toward outsiders? Well, wisdom has been an important sub-theme of this book, and in Colossians Chapter 2, verse 3, for instance, we read, In whom, that is Jesus, in whom in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is also caught up with knowledge of God's will in chapter 1, verse 9. It characterizes the right preaching of the gospel. And it characterizes the appropriate teaching of one Christian to another in song. So wisdom is ultimately bound up with the person of Jesus in knowing him and in being conformed to his likeness as we see deeper into the depths of the gospel, we are filled with wisdom. So the command here is to walk with sort of a Christ-centered or gospel-centered gait toward unbelievers. Every aspect of our lives is so colored by Jesus and his gospel that it emanates from our pores like sweat. It's our odor, if you'll allow for it, our fragrance. In this, we want to make the best use of our time. Time here is not the Greek word for a span of time, like an hour or a minute. But it's the Greek word for a crucial moment, the decisive and opportune time. We can often look back on significant moments in our lives where, things, where it seems like things went off the rails, can't we? We look back and we think, I wish that could have been different. How would things have turned out if, if just that, in that moment, in that season, I had done things differently? And we can do it in history. We might look at things like D-Day or Constantine's victory at the Milvian Bridge or the failed assassination of Adolf Hitler. Moments in time that decisively changed history. For Paul and for Christians, that time, that decisive opportune moment is right now. This season that we're in spiritually is that moment. 
We're in the midst of the last age of the universe as we know it. And every moment is like the most significant events in the history of the world magnified beyond imaginable limits. We have this moment and what we do with it will have eternal consequences. Not consequences for tomorrow, not consequences for next year, but consequences for eternity. How can you not waste it? Well, one key way to not waste this crucial moment is to open your mouth. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Just as we are to pray for the missionary work of the gospel, just as Jesus has taught us to pray to the Lord of the harvest for laborers, so we are to live in such a way that we ourselves are the answer to that prayer. We are the laborers. Our speech ought to be gracious, which certainly means kind and respectful, but also undoubtedly means that our speech is characterized by grace, filled with grace, a testimony to the grace of God, which took a wretched and undeserving sinner like me and purchased my life for his own glorious aims. And yet, that speech should be seasoned with salt that preservative of the ancient world that gave food its flavor and made it interesting and appealing. The upshot is that our speech, even though it makes bold claims, claims that are scandalous in the eyes of the world because the gospel of Jesus is scandalous, nonetheless should generally be winsome, even enjoyable, as much as it depends on us. The, the preacher on the corner who screams at people and insults them and humiliates them is not the image of salt. We certainly want to be no less bold than that. I'm not chastising that preacher's boldness, but our words should be of the sort that tend to gain a hearing. That kind of speech results in our ability to answer each person. Winsome, gracious speech will find the right word in each situation. Because of the awkwardness of translation, we might not get the real sense of just how important this is here. A, a very literal translation, which would make awkward and bad English, would be so that you know how it is necessary to answer each person. And I want to emphasize this idea of necessity. It is necessary for you to give an account to your non-Christian coworker or neighbor or family member. And with wisdom and grace, you'll do it appropriately. But it's necessary. Being silent is not an option. Speaking to those who do not know Jesus about the truth that we have in him is necessary. But also note that we are to answer each person, each person as an individual. Paul doesn't instruct us to memorize some cookie cutter gotcha booyah line so that you can slam your non-Christian opponent. He, he doesn't want us to treat everyone the same, even if it's generously. Each person has different fears. Each person has different concerns, questions, mistakes, pains, histories. 
and our answers should be tailored to the individual. Look, there, there's nothing wrong with memorizing basic presentation of the gospel. In fact, I, I encourage it. If you've never done that, do it. Get yourself a basic framework for sharing your faith with others so that you, know, you, you are always sure that you tell people the essential parts of the gospel that they need to understand. That can be very helpful. But at the same time, don't think you can go into every conversation like it's a lecture, like it's a one-way street where you can walk out and think you're done. We're to treat each individual as an individual. So if you think about Paul himself, the way he dealt with Lydia, the, the way he dealt with the jailer in Philippi, the, the way he uh, dealt with the philosophers at the Areopagus, the way that he dealt with Festus. Each one, he responded in a little bit different way, but all with the same aim of sharing the same gospel, knowing that their experiences and their questions and their concerns were different. So how are you going to do this? Well, it's well past time at Gateway that we became more externally focused and start sharing the gospel with those among whom we walk. In fact, we're going to start emphasizing this with one of our summer series coming up in just two weeks. But we can teach on it until we're blue in the face. One thing we must do is pray and say. Pray and say. Pray to God for the open door. Pray for each other's open doors and then open our mouths and let words come out. Maybe it won't go the way you want or the way you expected. Or maybe that's exactly the problem. It went exactly the way you expected. But Paul doesn't say give an answer that makes everyone accept you and become a Christian. He doesn't say give an answer that makes everyone think you're awesome. He just says give an answer. Your job, my job, the Christian's job isn't to convict people of their sin. That's the Spirit's job. Our job is to speak. That's it. So say and pray. And then let's talk about it. Get with another Christian. Get with, get with me. And let's talk about it. Let's talk about how it went and how it could be better. And pray about it together. Christian, our heavenly calling means our prayer lives and our daily lives ought to be gospel saturated. Let's get on it.